it's that time for us to take the Word of God in hand and to uh, immerse ourselves in the teaching of it that uh, the Lord will uh, assist us in the way that we please Him from day to day and how we live Christ to the world. So I'm excited to do that. Take your Bibles and find your way to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. While you're turning there, of course, I cannot resist but give some introductory remarks. Uh, And I'd like to begin with a question, and that is, where do you go for help these days? Where do you go for help? You might say, well, it really all depends what kind of help you're talking about. I mean, serious help. You're in some serious uh, trouble, some hot water. You're being perhaps accosted, or there's an emergency. But it would seem that the traditional and normal means of assistance are fading away. That's why I ask. It seems as though our present government wants to take away our right to bear arms. So, uh, having guns might not be an option anymore, the kind that you use to protect yourself. And calling 911 will most likely get you nowhere since many cities have dishonored the thin blue line by defunding it. Well, there are petitions and signatures, peaceful protests. Sure, try it. It will tax you, will use up your time and energy, and in the end, it will get you nowhere fast. Wow, what a dreary state of affairs. But we're Christians, remember? And that means uh, something quite important. What that means is that it really doesn't matter what kind of situation we may be facing, what kind of trial or emergency there is, because in the end, we really don't walk confidently in this world, or I should say our confidence that with which we walk in this world doesn't depend, of course, on those things that may be fading away, or anything else that may replace them. We don't fight, last I checked, with literal weapons, and that's because our fight is really with the the prince of the power of the air, spiritual authorities, right? So you need a supernatural weapon to fight a supernatural battle, and our weapon, of course, is the word of God. It is prayer. Those things we have. And yet there are so many Christians today who are not winning. They're not walking Sadis, uh, uh, confidently. They're not winning the fight if they're even enlisted in the service of Christ. Who knows? And it's not because they don't have access to the supernatural resources that we've just mentioned. No, it's those resources are always available to Christians. No, it's, it, it's not that we're in danger of having the production of Bible printing defunded yet anyway. Many Christians are going nowhere, I'm sorry, going elsewhere to find their confidence in living the Christian life. As contrary as that may seem to us, but that's what's happening. And when that happens, their resources are sure to fail them. You can be sure of that. Their confidence is sure to wane, and they are then sure to lose the fight every time. This morning we look at how we may live the Christian life with confidence, and we go to Hebrews chapter 10 for this, and I'm excited to examine it with you. We come to another portion of the letter where the writer pauses in the flow of his argument to admonish his readers. Now this is the third time that the writer brings sobering words to them, calling them to biblical action and warning them against drifting. We've talked a lot about this. The first came in chapter 
3, verse 7, all the way to chapter 4, verse 13. The second one was, or is just as, as large, chapter 5, verse 11, all the way to chapter 6, verse 20. And now here, his last will come in chapter 12, verses 14 to 20, 29, almost the entire chapter. Four times, four times does the writer devote quite a bit of space to, in this letter to admonishing his readers. And this ought to tell us something of the heart of this writer, pastor. He cares about the people in his church. He's concerned about their spiritual well-being. And we see another display of the same kind of love and concern on the part of the writers of the epistles. Many, you may recall, uh, have, uh, have very uh, endearing and, and, and genuinely sincere titles that they refer to the brethren with. Um, there is a, a rather severe list of trials that the Apostle Paul recounts for us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Maybe you would recall that very, uh, very um, disturbing list of things, testifying there to the fact that he had received from the Jews 39 lashes. Do you remember that? And three times beaten with rods, once he was stoned, three times shipwrecked, spent a night and a day adrift at sea, if you can believe this. Terrible things. And in his travels, he was constantly in danger from the natural elements, from robbers, from his own countrymen, the Gentiles, and from false brothers. In his hardships, he suffered hunger, sleepless nights, and the list goes on and on, all because of his, of his desire to obey Christ and his call to preach the word of God and to build churches. What I find amazing and instructive about this list is that Paul ends in verse 28 with these words. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Do you think Paul loved his people? Do you think he cared about his extended flock? I do. The Apostle John is very pastoral as well in his three epistles to the churches in Asia, calling them my little children. And it wasn't just because he was aged or aged at that time. He calls them my beloved many times throughout this first and second epistle. And in the third epistle, I love this part, John closes his letter with this. Though I have many things to write to you, I do not want to do so with paper and ink. But I hope to come to you and speak face to face so that your joy may be complete. What an amazing comment that is. As important as these letters of the New Testament are, for they are the inspired word of God, don't forget. John preferred to communicate with his flock face to face. Isn't that something? That tells us something about personal communion, doesn't it? It's rather convicting, I think, to think that we allow ourselves to substitute impersonal interaction with many other modes of impersonal communication more sophisticated than John's pen. We should take a lesson, I think, from John and what he says here. But shepherds who cared for their flocks, they wanted to see them face to face. They wanted to hold them and speak to them. Then there is James, Peter, and Jude, who also refer to their congregation as beloved. 
We should get into the habit of reading these letters you see as what they are. They are love letters to the church, full of care and concern, full of instruction, sometimes rebuke, yes, lots of hope. These are living and active words of grace and mercy that transcend the, the initial audiences and they apply to all Christians everywhere in all eras. What a wonderful, personal, and sanctifying faith we have. Well, the writer to the Hebrews falls right in line with these others, with his caring words of instruction and, and even warning, which he gives for the best interest of his audience. And we see it yet a third time here. In this particular admonition, we find no reprimand, which is usual for a uh, usual element in New Testament admonitions, but it does carry other of its usual elements, like earnestly urging the readers on to a particular action. That's one. And there's also a hint of warning. That is that we must heed his urgings to specific biblical acts, otherwise chaos and spiritual fallout is inevitable. He's like a voice of the sage in Proverbs telling his children to mind his instruction. He calls these first century Jewish Christians to follow through on what he's urging them so they can keep themselves from, from spiritually drifting. By the way, spiritually drifting was not only the problem of this church, <clears throat> but it was very much, or it is very much, a huge problem today, at least in churches in America. In just the past five years, we have witnessed how esteemed Christians, champions of the faith, have wandered into dangerous territory, right? Compromising their faith and message, buying into public consciousness and becoming spokesmen for error that they somehow can justify or rationalize and Christianize. Some of them have even fallen away from the faith. And with the, with the church at large being so weak in doctrine these days, there are many who stand to be swept up by this error and follow these very misguided and confused Christian personalities. So, beloved, I want to say before we dig in with our spades this morning, take to heart the admonition that is before us now. Take to heart. It's for you. It's for me. It's for all of us. Now, you need to know that these three admonitions sit squarely on a solid doctrinal foundation. That's very important, as I hope to show you. And the fact, that fact is just as important as the admonitions are themselves. Since chapter 4, way back, do you remember chapter 4? We did this months and months ago. The writer has been arguing for the superiority of Christ over Aaron. Christ's priesthood over Aaron's priesthood. He finished that argument in verse 18 of this very chapter, chapter 10. So six plus chapters he's been arguing this. <clears throat> His admonitions come at the beginning of verse 22. All right? So what happens between these two sections, between verse 18 and verse 22? What are the are verses 19 to 21 all about? I'm glad you asked. <clears throat> they are what we call transitional verses. Uh, they form a bridge that moves us from the doctrine of Christ's priesthood over here to these three admonitions. We know that just by, we know that just by the literary structure, their literary structure, it's very important to understand the literary structure of any passage. 
These sections begin, first of all, with therefore, which looks back to what has been said, these past six chapters. Also, the admonitions themselves complete the thought that begins in these transitional verses. So they start out by saying, therefore, since such and such is true, and we say to ourselves, yeah, since such and such is true, what? We're waiting for the writer to complete his thought. And he completes his thought in the admonitions themselves. Well, such and such is true, if it is, then let us do this, and let us do that, and let us do this. Now, I point this out to you because I want you to see what these verses are designed to do. They look back to what has been argued in the last six chapters, and they point ahead to these cert to certain actions that are the natural result or outcome of what was argued back here in these six chapters. So you might be thinking, okay, I get it. They're transitional verses. Yes, but please understand, this transition is just as important as the doctrine that comes before it and the admonitions that come after it. It doesn't just spill, uh, fill space here for a, a nice segue to, a next, to the next topic. There is a greater significance to this transition, and it's this. I'll tell you right now. This is what it is. It makes the point that Bible doctrine leads to godly action. Bible doctrine leads to godly action. The writer urges us on to know doctrine. In this, in this case, the doctrine of Jesus' priesthood, which he admits is a needy doctrine and not for babes in Christ. He told us that way back in chapter 5. And he, and he wants us to know, know it, not because it's a good thing to know or it's, it's good to be up on your Bible trivia. No, it's, it's, it's so that we can think and act biblically. That's why. You can do neither without being grounded in Bible doctrine. That's just the fact of the matter. <clears throat> there have been those in churches, of course, for a while, and there still are, who claim that they can have a close communion with God, they can discern his will for their lives, they can walk confidently without ever cracking the Bible, much less studying it. What a gift, huh? Don't believe it. Don't you believe it? They may think they have this kind of interaction with God, but they have nothing of the sort. And they are quite deceived, sadly. Close communion with God, the means to discern his will in a confident Christian walk, they come only by knowing God's mind and thinking his thoughts after him. And he gave us his thoughts in Scripture. This is the message that the writer really drives home with verses 19 to 21. So let me show you. Let's start with verse, not verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> he says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil, that is, through his flesh, as we said already, therefore draws on what the writer previously argued. It also, gives us the, it also gives the phrase, we have confidence, a causal sense. Can you see that? Therefore, because this is true, since, therefore, since this is true, it's a causal kind of 
uh, of idea. Therefore, since or because we have this confidence, and you may, <clears throat> you may remember in our discussions on the sacrificial system, no one was ever allowed direct access to God. Do you remember that? Not the worshiper, not the priests. The high priest was, but only once a year on the Day of Atonement. He would go through the veil to the Holy of Holies where the glory of God hovered over the mercy seat and he would make sacrifice for the entire nation. That was a hazardous job, by the way. He could die on the spot if, he didn't, if, if something were out of place, if he didn't do something right. He had to come with the blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle on the mercy seat. And at the sad time, same time, he had to come with the smoke of the, in, of the incense to shield himself from the glory of God. Or else he would be consumed by it. Very hazardous job. Happened once a year. Now, this idea is uh, that God's presence is holy and pure is very, very much emphasized. Okay? After all, God is a consuming fire. And his magnificent glory would cancel out sin the moment it came in contact with it. Much in the same way that it eradicated the issue of blood from the widow who touched the hem of Jesus' garment. Do you remember that? <clears throat> Mark chapter 5. And immediately Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? Isn't that amazing? God's holiness cancels out the power of sin. And it's absolutely unapproachable, as Moses himself would learn. You cannot see my face, God said to him for no one may see it and live. The Israelites were made keenly aware of this. Every time they made a sin offering and a burn offering, every time they <clears throat> brought a wave offering or a fellowship offering, every time they practiced the annual national festivals <clears throat> excuse me, and prepared for these through precious rituals. Every time they had a, 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 a mold problem in their house and they had to vacate it until the priest could pronounce it clean or pronounce them clean from any rashes on their body that they may have contracted before they could enter the sanctuary. Every time a woman was at the end of her cycle and needed to wash ceremonially, it wasn't easy living with God in their midst. God's holiness was awesome and terrible and could leave you a stain on the sand if you were careless. It's all the more shocking to any devout Israelite then to think that he himself at any time of the day or night could ever have free and direct access to the holy place where God's glory was actually come before the presence of God without fear of being consumed. It was unthinkable that God that, that could never happen. Private worship would turn into a suicide mission. We need a mediator, they would tell you, and he has to be qualified at that. Can you imagine then how stunned any Jew of the first century would have been to hear from this writer that Christians not only have access, but they should Enter confidently into the holy place. Oh, very stunned. Simply entering would get you killed, but a confident stride into the holy of holies would be considered a cheeky move. 
and would get you killed quicker. <clears throat> but this is true now under the new covenant. No more sacrifices, no more offerings, no more ceremonial washings, no more dietary laws. Jesus' blood made sure of that. And as it says in verse 20, he inaugurated a new and living way through the veil that once separated the worshiper from God, and that was his flesh. We're familiar enough now, I think, with these Old Testament images of sacrificial system, of the sacrificial system, to know that, that they were types of the once-for-all sacrifice that Jesus would ultimately make on our behalf. His blood inaugurated the new covenant, which opened to us a new and living way to God. It is certainly new in the sense that it never existed before. And it is living in the sense that it is the only way that God has put in place now, the only way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is eternal, never to be replaced, as the Old Covenant was replaced. Now, if you would just indulge me a moment here, I cannot help but pause for just a few moments to emphasize just how important it is that we not lose sight of the holiness of God. Now, this passage is not, is not specifically about the holiness of God, but we see it shining through. Jesus' sacrifice may have abolished the old restricted and impersonal way to God, but it doesn't abolish God's holiness. God is still as holy as he ever was. Jesus simply made the way to God open, but we, we find waiting for us on the other side a holy God. American Christianity <clears throat> is a faith that thrives out from under the spotlight of God's holiness, sadly. And its worship services have become what I would call anthropocentric. What does that mean? It means man-centered, anthro. Anthropos, anthropocentric, man-centered, where God is brought down to the human level, where God is our buddy. We call him dad, if you can believe it. Worship must be theocentric, that is God-centered. It needs to be Christ-centered, where worshipers assemble to worship the majesty on high in their dressed blues. I'll add that. Partial to, to the Marines. Sorry, guys. They come with reverence and humility. Nevertheless, American Christianity persists in creating an atmosphere of irreverence where God is brought down to our level, where there is the mistaken notion that God accepts me just the way I am. Beloved, God does not accept anyone just as he or she is. You know that, right? If that were true, then there would have been no need for Jesus to die. God accepts us just as Christ is. Last I checked. God still demands our first and our best of everything. Worship is still predicated on, the, on a right relationship with others before we give of our offerings, is it not? Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, we need to be right with our brother, right? Churches that insist on making Christianity all about the person rather than all about God need to know that God gives grace to the humble, but he, is oppose, he opposes the proud. 
Well, <clears throat> what the writer does in verses 19 and 20, he also does in verse 21. He establishes in summary form the doctrine that he has been arguing, again, since chapter 4. He says, and therefore, since we have a great priest over the household of God. The writer has devoted a sufficient amount <clears throat> to the, of space to the, to the fact that Jesus is our high priest. He is superior to Aaron. And when Jesus died and became our high priest, he put all priests out of business. No more priesthood. No more priesthood. Jesus sat down and now is our only mediator, right? Isn't that what Paul said? There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We've spent a, a fair amount of time talking not only about that, but it's wonderful realities that go with a sympathetic high priest. He can sympathize with us. <clears throat> so once again, in verses 19 to 21, we have a transition. A transition from the doctrine of Christ's priesthood to these three admonitions. And in so doing, <clears throat> excuse me, they are meant to tell us that one establishes the other. Doctrine establishes practice. Doctrine leads to doxology. In these transitional verses, the writer presents us with undeniable doctrinal facts of Jesus, his sacrifice, his priestly work, both of which are unique to the New Covenant. And then he goes on to show us the logical outcome of this doctrine in practical form with the admonition. It's important, then, that you see the literary arrangement of these verses, 19 to 21. They teach a call to godly action that is based on Bible doctrine, very simply. A call to believers to practice their faith on the basis of sound biblical truth. Because of sound, undeniable biblical facts, we must therefore act. There are many ways that we could say it, but I think you get the point. <clears throat> well, I, we cannot stress enough the importance of both doctrine and practice both of which have really suffered for a long time in America and currently in a state of, they're in a state of decline in the church. The doctrine is a dirty word in many churches around the country, and their practice is left up to the individual Christian to define, basically. And that's really a problem, because you can never separate doctrine and practice, all right? If there's nothing else you learn today from this passage, learn that. You can never separate doctrine and practice. Doctrine without practice is nothing but dry orthodoxy. And practice without doctrine is damning religion. God wed these two for a reason. I say again, doctrine that is not practiced is dead orthodoxy, and practice that is not defined by biblical doctrine is damning religion. We, we do what we believe to be true from the Bible, I hope. So here the writer is quite right to base these three bursts of admonition on sound doctrinal facts. Because of our doctrine, because it's true, he says, let us behave this way. We might even say that the particular action that the writer calls for here is the proper way to express the doctrine that he has just spent six chapters outlining. It is here that he puts feet to the doctrine. So let's consider now the admonitions. I know you were wondering when we were going to get to them. So we're here. We have time only for the first one in verse 22. Through high figure, 
highly figurative language of the Old Testament, Old Testament ritual, the writer gives three admonitions. They're grammatically unmistakable. Each begins with let us. Let us. We might preface each of them by stating the doctrinal basis for them. It's always a good thing to do. So this is how I would word, word it. If it is true that we can now enter confidently into the holy sanctuary without fear because of Christ's work and appeal to him, our sitting high priest, and it is true, then let us continue to approach God. First admonition. Let us continue to approach God. Just for the record, we understand this admonition in the next two clearly to be directed to the believing community. That's you and me. They are not invitations to become Christians, as some have argued. And now that doesn't mean, of course, that they cannot challenge people who don't know or don't claim to have a relationship with Christ. They certainly can. It is often the case in the New Testament that admonitions to believers to act godly because they can in Christ also convict unbelievers who hear it that they cannot act godly unless they first trust Christ. But be that as it may, the primary thrust of the, this, these admonitions in our text, I believe, is directed to the believing community. And one good reason I, for, 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 for saying that is that the writer includes himself in each one of these. Right? He says, let us. Another reason I say that is, is this. These admonitions demonstrate that those being addressed have the ability to keep them. God does call us to obey him unless we can, right? And we can. So within this first admonition, stated in verse 22, it reveals what is true of those who keep it. So let's examine it more closely. Therefore, since the doctrine of Christ's priesthood is true, let us approach God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Notice that those who can approach God do so with a sincere heart. They do so with a sincere heart. And this is because they've been given a new heart, a new nature at conversion. We've considered already Ezekiel 36. Remember where the prophet prophesies of the new covenant that God would put a new heart and a new spirit in us. That's happened. If you are what Jesus calls born again, that's what's happened to you. He's placed the heart of stone, that is a sin nature, and he's replaced it, that sin nature that promotes counterfeit works of righteousness, promotes empty ritual and hypocritical worship. He's replaced it with a heart of flesh, that is a new nature, that is alive and can offer a sincere faith. We heard read in our scripture reading this morning, Psalm, or to open rather, I should say Psalm 24. And the psalmist's use, use of the words heart and hands are notable. He says, who may ascend onto the hill of the Lord? That's really a figure for the sanctuary. And who may stand in his holy place? <clears throat> he answers, one who has clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to deceit and has not sworn deceitfully. The psalmist knows that the heart is the control center of the individual. It's where motives and it's where thoughts are born. Everything you ever do starts there first. 
They must be pure and sincere if they will promote sincere and godly acts. That's demonstrated in the hands. Pure heart, clean hands. Clean hands, pure heart. Our actions come from the overflow of our hearts. <clears throat> and <clears throat> a bad heart produces bad acts. Good heart, good acts. What else? Well, believers come to God in full assurance of faith. They come to God fully assured that they are saved by the blood of Christ alone. Now, this doesn't rule out the possibility that Christians, mostly new Christians, may have doubts about their salvation at times, and they do. It means that they should be, a re they should be reassured of their salvation so they can approach God with confidence. How's one assured of salvation? Well, not by some inner feeling, I can assure you. If that were true, then many doubting Christians would be locked in their doubt, since it's by feelings that they lose their assurance in the first place. What now? You should know that many Christians actually don't feel any, anything distinct at their conversion. Some do, some don't. Nor does the Bible actually tell us that we are to feel anything as a way of confirming our salvation. If assurance doesn't come by feelings, how do we get it back? By knowing that God promised to save us the moment we believed in his Son and repented of our sin. That's how. If you believe on the work of Christ alone, then you have God's promise that he accepts you. Never as you are, of course, but only as Christ is. And you should remind yourself of that, no matter how you feel. Or no matter how lost you feel. If you're uh, a professing Christian, you can run the gamut of bad emotions in your Christian, in your Christian life. And, and that you don't feel like you're saved, but, but never trust your feelings when it comes to your salvation, ever. You need to trust God's immutable, unchangeable character and his promises. That's how you can know that you are saved. Isn't that what John says? That's what we heard read in our scripture reading for this morning. Children, I write this to you that you may know that you have eternal life. What else? Well, we come after having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. One of the big reasons why unbelievers reject the gospel is because it condemns them. People don't like to be called sinners, and some take exception to the fact that they even are. Yet no one can escape the guilt that comes from suppressing God's truth and throwing off the Creator to worship the creation. Guilt is real, and it is a sign that one has offended a holy God. That's what guilt is all about. Our American culture, of course, has tried its level best to immunize people against the feeling of guilt with the vaccine of psychology. No psychological paradigm includes guilt. Does that surprise you? It doesn't, trust me. Clients are never guilty. To say so would be bad for business. Guilt means that your client is wrong is to blame for his or her own actions and personally responsible to fix his and her own problems. But then again, personal responsibility is not part of the paradigm either. 
You wouldn't get many clients coming to your practice if you told them that they're guilty of wrongdoing and need to take responsibility for their problems. As I say, it's bad for business. It's also not tolerated in our post-Christian society. In fact, that kind of language is highly offensive. It's probably even racist, too. Most things are. With no guilt, there is no sin that caused the guilt. The client does not sin and is never wrong. If he feels guilty, the psychologist will dispel that by shifting the blame of his guilt to uh, guilty feelings onto something else or someone else. If someone else, someone else's fault, it's the fault of, of the environment, could be a disorder or a disease. In fact, I very much think it is, and that's what the problem is, and so on. And if your problems are really the fault of someone or something else, then you bear no responsibility to change. None at all. How convenient is that? That sells. But the Bible shines its light of truth into the dark and deceived hearts of unbelievers, and it reveals their real sin and their true guilt. And then it offers the only answer for dealing with both. Repentance. The heart that God regenerates, that heart of flesh that we talked about a moment ago, bears the fruit of faith and repentance. And when it does, all guilt is gone. And there is no fear of judgment anymore, of judicial judgment, from the only one who can really, truly exercise judicial judgment. And that's God himself. The blood of Christ was sprinkled over depraved hearts and cleansed them. Genuinely born-again person can go before the presence of God without fear of judgment, as the Apostle Paul said, uh, John said, rather, because of perfect love with which God loved us in the act of saving us, casts out fear of judicial judgment from the heart. And a wonderful message that is, isn't it? A message of hope. The last element here is our bodies washed with pure water. In keeping with the use of Old Testament imagery, the writer refers to here to the ceremonial washing the high priest had to do on the Day of Atonement before he put on his priestly attire and dare enter the Holy of Holies on pain of death. Ezekiel, in his prophecy of the New Covenant, mentions that God would sprinkle clean water on his people to cleanse them from spiritual impurities, sin. So the writer draws on this imagery and most likely has Christian baptism in mind. You say, really, baptism? Yes, I believe so. Now, we all know that the the ordinance of baptism is an outward act, right? It is an outward act that is symbolic of an inner spiritual cleansing that the Holy Spirit wrought in us at our conversion. That's why the New Testament commands only people who have been converted to be baptized. Because when you are, you are communicating to the world outwardly what has happened and what is true of you inwardly. In fact, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 makes this point very clear. Baptism now saves you, he says, But then he qualifies that, for we know no works can ever save an individual, only the work of Christ alone. He goes on to say, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. 
It's talking about the gospel. The idea that baptismal water is not intended to remove bodily impurity, but to show that God granted our prayer for a good conscience through Christ is very much um, present here. The Holy Spirit is the one who applies the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. And that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 5 of Christ's death as a way of washing us clean. Do you remember? Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. There it is. Paul was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew his Old Testament. Let me repeat what we've been saying. Christians demonstrate that they have had their conscience cleansed once for all by the work of Christ by being baptized in water. That's how they have communicated this great inward truth. It is an outward sign of an inward cleansing. Christians then are the only ones, therefore, who can approach God without fear of judgment because of the work of Christ that has been wrought in them. So there is never any doubt about it. This admonition reveals that those who approach God can because of their new birth. What are the... what? What, in what context are we to approach God then as we bring this to a close? It's a good question. It should be obvious, really, in prayer, where we commune with the Lord and worship Him individually. God speaks to us through His Word. We speak to Him through prayer. Of course, communion with the Lord encompasses communal worship, such as what we're doing right now on the Lord's Day. And we would argue that What must be true of a person that allows him to pray to God is likewise necessary to worship the Lord publicly as well. But I would argue that prayer is more in the mind of the writer here for a couple of reasons. The Old Testament imagery used is reminiscent of the old old sacrificial system, right? And so it, 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 it specifically talks about the mediation that the high priest brought on behalf of the nation um, for repentance to God and, and, and God's forgiveness of them. Another reason is that all of the other contexts in which the writer does speak of drawing near to God in this letter have all been, have all, <clears throat> um, or all rather, have uh, prayer uh, in, in this regard. They, they all point to coming to God in prayer as I'll show you in a little bit. But it leads us uh, to the last part of this admonition. This admonition tells us who is capable of heeding. And we said it's God's elect. In what context do they carry it out? In prayer. And now, the occasion for prayer. And that's this. Any time, really, any time. But especially in times of need. Especially in times of need. When you read this admonition, draw near to God or let us approach him, you see to whom it is addressed and you can infer in what context. But you might not be clear on why, the why part. Exactly what am I to approach God for? The writer doesn't say. But he doesn't have to say because he's already said it before in this letter. Up to this point in the book, the writer refers to this uh, in, in the context of Christians finding help from Christ when they go to him in prayer. Perhaps the 
The best example of this is chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the end uh, of time. We draw near to God, a God's throne of grace, to find help and to find hope. It's a throne of grace, remember. It's not a throne of judgment. Think about what having confident access means. The writer is not referring just to the fact that we have the luxury of speaking to God any time, day or night, unhindered. While it's wonderful that I don't have to go through a priest, I don't have to pray to dead people that, that I was once told uh, the church has designated for this very purpose, I, I see here that the writer has something more in mind individual piety, speaking to God in my prayer closet, so to speak, or while driving my car is certainly part of it, yes, but the idea emphasized here is coming to God for help. Just as we read in chapter 4, the writer says now we not only can, but we should do. Come to God, come before his face, come with confidence, because it is there that we can find help, much-needed assistance. Confidence is a great theme in this letter, beloved, and it's now the order of the day. It's the order of the day for Christians. It was then and it is now, but it is sorely lacking now as it was then. Today, the confidence that Christians secure for themselves to live the faith doesn't last because they go outside the faith to find it. Do you understand that? They seek it in relationships. They seek it in something that works for them, even if it's a secular system of thinking or activity. They seek support groups. They seek it in music or vicariously living through certain personalities, shockingly, even substances. Even those who put on a rather ostentatious display of spirituality, praising God here and invoking the name of Jesus there, They struggle to walk confidently, continually, because the source of their confidence is temporal, it's earthly, and it's secular. And you cannot trust that to live an eternal, heavenly, spiritual life. Please know that confidence for the Christian life comes from our relationship with a sovereign, loving, just, holy immutable, omniscient, omnipresent, and faithful Lord who has given us his will on the printed page. So we should seek our confidence in him and in his word, in the supernatural intercession even that takes place between him and the Holy Spirit that indwells us. We have have a great resource in the new covenant of better promises. You might be wondering why Christians then would circumvent this wonderful supernatural resource and go elsewhere for their confident living. Many reasons. One big one is that they have no faith in the sufficiency of the Holy Spirit. They have no faith in the sufficiency of the Bible to give them the answers to handle their problems. Another answer, as we've argued, is a lack of Bible doctrine. You have to know about the faith in order to live it effectively. One final element that I want to bring to your attention, and I waited until now to bring this out, 
And that is, the verb, let us draw near, or let us approach God, conveys continual action. It is really, let us continually approach. Yet another reason why it is directed to believers. We don't draw near to God just once. We draw near to him in prayer, to commune with him, to seek his assistance on a regular basis. In fact, it needs to be so regular, so regularly a part of our life, that Paul would even say, pray without ceasing. Well, we've said that doctrine determines our practice, and Bible doctrine will definitely define godly behavior. And godly behavior is not always easy to muster, beloved. So we run to the Lord. And we cry out to him for assistance, knowing that he can sympathize with us and give us help in time of need. And we do need him in this area that we call the faith, living the faith. Now, next time, we'll see how doctrine helps us in the area of hope and love. Faith, hope, and love. Meantime, meantime, draw near to God regularly this week. Ask for wisdom. Ask for his will to be done in your life. Ask for, the, for his will to be done in the lives of others that you intercede for. And ask for his assistance in the heat of the battle when temptation is at its greatest. God is faithful. Father, we do thank you for this time.